All right. Okay. Welcome to the Thereafter Podcast, a place where we explore life on the other side of faith change. We're here to break down the binaries, deconstruct the dualities, and wander through what it looks like to live in the gray. In church, we were told that life after leaving would be a bitter wasteland of unfulfilling hedonism, but we've discovered quite the opposite. There's actually a vibrant community of people on the other side of faith who are finding and co-creating space for hope and healing. Come along as we explore the all too often uncharted expanse of evangelicalism, evolving faith, and the life thereafter. It's another episode of the Thereafter Podcast. Oh my, did you create a jingle? I, I, like, where I have I been? I just wrote that jingle just I, now. I, like, blinked, and now you have a jingle for the podcast? You know, a few weeks ago, we were talking about really increasing the production value of the podcast, and I thought, no. you know, what would do it better than an impromptu jingle that I just made up? I think the word you were looking for was flare, Corlin, flare. <laughs> That, that was very Flair-esque of you to have a little Thanks. jingle. Thanks. I love it. Thanks. I, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm, I am coming out of uh, a somewhat depressive uh, season episode, uh, extended episode, and uh, I'm feeling pretty, pretty good. I've set some new boundaries. I'm feeling a bit rejuvenated. I've been getting lots of sleep. I still don't have ADHD meds, so I'm just leaning in to being unmedicated right now. Oh, wow. That's, yeah, <laughs> I've seen your threads about that. That's brutal. Yeah, it's all right. I'm just letting my body sleep when it wants to, which is like most of the time. I went out to my car at my office and slept in my car in the parking lot today, and it was awesome because I was nice. like, nope, my body needs to sleep right now. We're just going to do it in the car. Um, are you drinking water? Because that's my issue. My body always wants water, and I forget. I have not been doing the best. Josh Hake uh, would not be proud of me. Yeah. <laughs> he would be proud of me, because I imagine he's always proud of me, no matter what. But he would tell me I need to drink more water. Shout out yes. to Josh Hake. In a very encouraging way, because that's how that's In a lovely way. Yes. That would make me feel seen and valued and loved. And it would feel like a big hug through the internet, as every interaction with him does. That yeah, you just summarized the profile of Josh Hake. I love it. Oh, he's the best. Um. Well, should we get into Twitbits? I guess we should. Um, this is Twitbits. Yeah. And <laughs> I was thinking about it as we were getting ready to record today, and I was like, even doing this intro for these episodes every week still doesn't feel like fast enough to respond to some of these things because I'm already tired of talking about what we're going to talk about first. The fucking gospel <laughs> coalition. What? You're tired of it? Like they're you're the fucking gospel coalition. Did they change their name officially to the fucking gospel coalition? Now <laughs> yeah, that they're in the erotica no business. TGC it's TFGC. Or if you're Kevin Nye, who's tweeting a thread about them and accidentally says THC, that's even better. <laughs> He was like, that would have been a way better article, actually, if it was from THC. Um, THC mag. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so Josh Butler, I thought it was funny he went by Josh Butler because it's usually Joshua Ryan Butler, um, had just a really weird article come out about sex and 
Jesus's seed being planted inside women. And, and it was just really like, uh, as, as Matt, the snarky John would say, like he's revealing his kink here, like just like theological yeah. erotica kind of thing. But it was also like, it was super, weird. Uh, yeah. Do you want, do you have anything before we dive into like how it was, do you have any, anything you want to say about the actual article itself? Um, no, I only skimmed the article and saw screenshots. Um, I guess one thing that I will say from from the top is like I I talked to some of my friends who are uh, a little bit more theologically versed than me and uh, did have some interesting conversations about like sex as a sacrament and some of the you know the idea some of the ideas that are actually maybe kind of beautiful or interesting around sex and its connection to theology and the divine etc and i think i just like as a disclaimer would say that like there are like historically women and uh specifically women uh and and folks who have written about the intersection of sex and theology and sex and the divine in ways that are interesting and beautiful and i think of even like richard Rohr, who talked about like I remember one time hearing him talk about how it's like, it's all sex. Like the whole world is like fucking itself. And like, like, like that's kind of, I don't know if that's a paraphrase of father Richard horror. Um, but there is something beautiful about like how, like, like sex and union and, and whatever is a part of this, like creation and divine and mystery, et cetera. This was not that. Yeah. I was, <laughs> I I was going to say and, the same thing. And so I think it's important when we're critiquing this to also just acknowledge that there are other expressions uh, and it's not just like, oh, well, anytime you talk about sex and theology, it's weird and creepy. Um, this was weird and creepy. Yes. <laughs> like, like, yeah, I think that's uh, a good it, distinction. For a second, yeah. I thought you were going to try to give him the benefit of the doubt and I was I was like ready no, to fuck JRB, <laughs> Junior B. Yeah, I would say uh, I, I think guy. I tweeted out like the pipeline. Josh Harris um, has just become Josh Josh Ryan Butler, um, yeah. but it's just um, yeah. And and he was about to launch a purity course. I don't think it was called that. I think it was a sex course, and it was just kind of wild because it went from rage to really hilarious jokes about it. Um, because they had, like I even started a thread. I got seventy um, comments on my thread of like all the hilarious jokes about it. I'm trying to even there remember some great like, responses. What my favorite. Uh, and then, and then it went to like the gospel coalition responding by like initially deleting the tweets, but leaving the article up and then taking the article down. And, and then like other people that were endorsing it saying like, Oh, I, I guess I like missed that part, which I don't buy. Cause if you're endorsing a book and you're reading 20% of it, you're probably going to read the first chapter or the intro, you know? So, yeah, and then now they've removed him from the Keller Institute and, and all of that, which I think is funny because in their quote-unquote apology about the whole thing, they were like, we care deeply about our friend Josh and we we realized maybe this wasn't the right way. But they never really said what they did wrong. And so I, I just think, like, was that an apology or was it just like, like, who who was the person that that sent a message to the gospel coalition to say, I'm out if this is what you, who you have. And they were like, Oh no, we need to keep you. So like, like maybe we should drop Josh Butler. Yeah. Which is, which is an interesting, uh, 
observation for a group of people who I think represent a good chunk of the anti-cancel culture, anti-woke uh, group of, of culture and society um, that they essentially canceled Josh Butler uh, and did it like pretty obviously for PR reasons, not, not, yeah. not for anything where it's like, Oh, this was actually harmful or uh, it's like, it was pretty much like, Ooh, that was a bad luck. We're going to now distance ourselves. They basically did exactly what they accuse the, you know, left of doing uh, of cancel culture uh, for virtue signaling, signaling purposes, you know, it's like, oh, well, it's not meaningful. It's just your virtue signaling um, and, you know, canceling people because you don't want to look bad. And like, that's essentially exactly what they did in this scenario. Which is surprising because it's not like, is it even like the Gospel Coalition to dial back on their toxic takes about sex? It's not. No. I don't, I mean, I don't, I, I have not known them to, to retract or pull things back. No. I mean, it's not like they didn't know his views or who he was, or he hasn't written dozens of articles for them before or books. Like I, like it just surprises me that this book is about to come out and they're like, whoops, maybe we disagree with some of it. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. And to your point, I don't know that they said what they disagreed with. Like there was no real, like. Hey, this was problematic, and you know we 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 realize that now there was it was just like very vague and so very bizarre. PR, you know, self protectionary. It was it was a bad apology. Yeah. But I mean, like who who expected a good one? <laughs> I didn't expect any apology, so <laughs> I guess you know. Well, that's, I that's I will say I can't think of off the top of my head like my favorite takes, but I will say that I know that they probably came from either Transvangelical or Robin Junia on Twitter. And so if you want to check out those hilarious takes and jokes about it, go check out those two accounts because they're both amazing humans, but also they were hilarious that whole day. And that was like, it was, it was great. I think Transvangelical said it pretty much became my personality. And I was like, I'm here for this. Yeah. Yeah. It was a gold mine of, of, content <laughs> yes. for sure yeah um so what else what else happened on the on the twitter spear this week i think sean foyt and uh, mark driscoll are dating do we oh. do that <laughs> I, I love the way you said that i don't know that they've come out with an official celebrity couple name yet foycle <laughs> uh yes I think honestly, it, because of the 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 level of Theobro that they are, I think they would go by mm -hmm. Sean Mark. I just, Sean Mark. I just think that's like it, they wouldn't combine their last names. They would just go by Sean Mark. Yep, Sean Mark Driscoll. Yeah. So if you, <laughs> if you missed it, Mark Driscoll was tweeting about um, his quote unquote controversial new series about. LGBTQ folks, um, in his words, and Sean waging Foyt, war against oh, LGBT yes. folks, I think is the the it was you know not to be confused uh, that we're going to get a little violent war rhetoric in there too. Yeah, no, that I'm glad you I'm glad you made sure we mentioned that. Um, and then Sean Foyt was like, "Oh, I'll have to check this out." And and Driscoll said, "Hey, if you're ever 
in Scottsdale, we'd love to host you. And I just saw that interaction and was like, that is just not the the pair up that I'm here for. Like, not at all. Like, we don't need that in yep. the world. Yeah, it's wild to me that that Mark Driscoll is still a fucking thing. Like, it's just, it's, it is, yeah, it's wild to me. Well, hey, just move to a new city and you're not toxic anymore, right? Isn't that how it goes? Yeah, but I mean, even the amount of shit that he's done in Scottsdale, it's not like the drama stopped or the like, like, like he's like regularly been called out and there's been stories and, and like all kinds of like, like it didn't end at Mars Hill. It's like still like going, still being talked about. I mean, it's just, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's wild to me that there is people it feels dense. I don't know. That feels mean, I guess, but like dense enough, gullible enough to like continue to like, regardless of how bad your theology or understanding of things are, um, to continue to like, like people give him money, like thousands of dollars. Like people give him, like, it's wild. Like who is yeah. doing that? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, even, I think, like, yeah. It's the people that think that all of the critique that he gets is Christian persecution. That's who it is, right? They're like, oh, he must be doing really good work in the world because he's getting so much pushback and he's getting persecuted for it. And so it's like, okay, um, that that's one measure. Like I, I think some people like to measure the good work by like the fruits of the spirit, but okay, <laughs> if you want to pretend I think you want to have a persecution there's, complex. There's an element of like, like – people support the people based on like who they're against. It's like, I don't like Mark Driscoll, but I hate gay people so much. I like Mark Driscoll. Like, like, oh, like yeah. you can't actually like Mark Driscoll, but like you, you, maybe you just hate the same people enough to support him. Well, isn't that Trump supporters in a nutshell? Like, I don't love Trump, but I hate abortion. So I got to vote for Trump. Yeah. 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 I, I feel like that's like the whole personality of like the far right is like it's just constantly doing deals with the devil like because of like your mutual enemies. Well, and it, that's the whole way that the far right has become the far right, too, because they've they've capitalized on that. That's not it's not by accident that that people voted for Trump because they hated abortion. It, that was created by the far right. So, let's, yeah, like. Shout out to Brad Onishi and Straight White American Jesus because he's explored all of this in depth. And um, if you haven't checked out his podcast, um, he's been on our show, but he has a really great podcast to to yes. talk all things that. Um, but yeah, I also, before we dive into this interview, you had a Twitter interaction that I thought was really interesting yesterday about like Twitter crushing and Twitter flirtation and um yeah, and, and you had a good take on it. And I don't know, um, do you want me to pull up the tweet? Let's talk about it. Yeah, and if you could pull up. Yeah, Brent's, here it is. Uh, um, okay. So somebody said, my toxic trait is I think it's pretty weird when married people flirt with people besides their spouse on here or unmarried people flirt with married people. And um, and, and I thought your response was, was interesting because one of the things that we talk about on this show a lot is that sometimes you can throw something out there and there's nuance. And I think that I try to 
draw lines and say like, no, there's a rule here and there's a rule there. And you're like, no, there's nuance there too. And so you were able yeah. to respond in a way that was super nuanced and I want to hear about it. Yeah. And I already said his name, so I'll say it. Brent, Brent Wagner, uh, just because we had a great interaction and you know, the, the thing is like, I flirt liberally on Twitter. I love flirting. I love, uh, having Twitter crushes. I crush on a new person on Twitter, uh, quite regularly. <laughs> and what I had responded was basically like, Hey, at, like I have like all the respect in the world for people who see flirting, uh, or have flirting as a part of their relationship agreement, um, around fidelity and that, you know, what it means to be, uh, in a relationship or have fidelity in your relationship, whether it's monogamous or polyamorous or however it's structured. Um, if that's a part of it, like all the respect to the world, However, you know, I am a married person who flirts liberally with consent. And I think that that's also the bigger piece of the conversation for me is that like there is like like asking like, hey, can I flirt with you? Are you open to this? Do you are you comfortable with this type of interaction? This is what my intentions are. That shouldn't be so weird uh, and it shouldn't uh, be abnormal uh, to ask and talk about, um, because I don't think that the way that obviously the way everybody perceives what that is and what it means is going to be very different. And I too, I, I totally understand where Brent was coming from. And we ended up, you know, kind of going back and forth in the replies and then DMing a little bit about this because like his perspective was like, he sees people get uncomfortable. He sees people get in situations, especially we've talked about this on the book on the podcast before. It's like the post purity culture dude. Who's like, I deconstructed purity culture. Here's a picture of my dick. And you're like, no, that's not <laughs> yeah. what it means. Yeah. <laughs> no, I can do Too this. Far. Cause of, you know, fuck purity culture. And it's like, no, you're being weird. <laughs> you're being weird. You missed the, the point. Um, the point is that there should be conversation, communication and consent when having any type of interaction with anyone from any orientation, relationship structure, marital status, relationship status, et cetera, um, single people are not just like, because they're single, because they are unpartnered or not in a relationship, just fair game to flirt with. Some of them don't want to be flirted with. Some people who are unpartnered or single don't, you know, and some married people like myself, please flirt with me. I want the attention. Uh, you know, I, I would love it um, if you flirt with me most of the time, 99.9% uh, .9 of the time. So I think for me, it's like we need to talk about like what it is, not about the, the, the labels of, you know, don't do this because you're married or unmarried. Um, but more than anything, like, don't do this without, like, having consent and conversation and communicating about it. Um, and just because somebody doesn't respond uncomfortably doesn't mean that they're not uncomfortable. Yeah. I think that is another thing, too, is that, like, the expectation that someone is responsible to tell you that they're uncomfortable is putting the expectation in the wrong place. Like, if you are the pursuer, you are acting in a way, you're interacting uh, or seeking somebody out, right? And and being, I'm trying to think of words that aren't, like, aggressor. <laughs> like, uh, what's like if you are being the pursuer in a relational interaction, it's on you to 
ensure that there's comfort from the other person. Hey, are you comfortable with this? Are you okay with this? Like I'm, I'm wanting to be respectful of where you are and your boundaries. And, uh, that's that responsibility isn't just on the persons to like tell you when they're uncomfortable. Yeah. I think is, is one of the big things that I think needs to be said. Well, and I think um, you mentioned consent communication to emphasize, but then, you know, to go back to also the keyword that you said earlier, which is within your relationship agreement, because if you are partnered, um, a, like that could be part of your relationship agreement that you and your partner are totally okay with flirting, whether you're in an open relationship or not. And I think that's a good thing to emphasize too. Um, yeah. I always joke on here that I like to have DTRs with my friends, like define the relationship talks. And I just texted someone, re one of my friends recently. And I was like, man, being bi is kind of exhausting because you have to have DTRs with men and women and everyone. And, and they were like, you're like the Oprah of DTRs. You get a DTR and you get a DTR and you get a DTR. <laughs> everyone gets a DTR. Um, but it, it is like, it, it is kind of my thing, but also I just like clarity. I like to have, I, I like to know where everybody's coming from and just make sure that everybody does communicate and consent to the, the kinds of conversations that people have. So, um, yeah. I and, think that's good. and I think to, to call back to something that you've said regularly here is that you have to have an understanding of power dynamics also. Yes. Like if you don't have that understanding, I got into this conversation with uh, a friend of mine this last weekend and she was like, just like going off. I wish I had it like tape recorded. Cause I was like, Oh, this is so good. Taking me to church about understanding that outside of of being able to analyze power dynamics, like I don't give a fuck what your opinion is. You could have the right opinion and be analyzing power dynamics wrong, and you're wrong um, because that is the more important reality of these interactions is assessing power balance and power dynamics and assessing the dynamics around the situation and the conversation, not the, you know, just the bare content of the interaction, but all of the context that it sits within. And if you're not doing that, then, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't care if you're right. That, that, that really is secondary to, are you observing the context of the situation that you're engaged in? A thousand percent. Yep. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, I think that covers everything just for our twippets. I feel like we could talk about that for a long time, but that's, that's in the realm of things we always talk about. Um, so why don't we dive into the interview? We have an awesome guest today, Camille. And, um, yeah, I want to jump in and have our listeners. She is awesome. Yes. I, I am so excited for y'all to hear this interview. I am so excited to have her as a guest and I'm so grateful to have her as a connection and a friend uh, on the web and on Twitter. And I just, before you even get into the interview, pull up your phone, go to her Twitter, go to her website, follow her, subscribe. It's, you're going to love it. I'm just, I'm a huge fan. So I'm very excited to share this interview with everybody today. Same, same. Let's dive in. Let's do it. We are so excited to be here. Uh, Megan is here with another me episode Portland is of the here. Thereafter podcast. Another episode of the Thereafter podcast. The third time you're hearing that. Welcome to the show. And our guest, Camille, I'm so excited to have you here. Uh, welcome to Thereafter. Hi, everybody. Hello. <laughs> I am particularly excited because you have been a guest that has been 
on my list and somebody who I've really um, been excited to talk to, and I wasn't sure whether we would even be able to get you on the podcast. So uh, I'm very honored and excited that you're spending time with us. Um, and I don't remember how I originally discovered you, but I remember the first time that I heard your voice was on Robert Monson's podcast. You did an interview on Robert Mon Monson's podcast, yes. and I don't know when that yeah. was. Coffee and Pillage. That was last year. 20. But I heard no, that, that and then I was an instant fan. So I <laughs> um, am so excited to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I actually don't remember when I started following the both of you. It was Twitter. But it's been fun. I do we have to think about origin stories? The journey has been fun following the book. <laughs> <of you. laughs> yes. I will hold on. We um joked, we had a guest that it it was the eight minute mark when we brought up the word journey, and they're like, I'm surprised it took this long to say that word. So um oh, do you well, it's like you need bingo cards for this show. It we is, should make bingo yes. cards. What are the words in this podcast that we're going to hear? I love that. Um, well, we always kick off and we have our guests give a little bit of context of kind of how, who you are, how you grew up and if, did you grow up in faith? Um, and, you know, in, in a lot, you know, until you got to that moment of maybe disentangling, questioning, that kind of thing. So if you want to give us a little bit of that, we would love to start there. Yeah. So um, my name is Camille. I grew up in a lot of faith traditions. So there, there's like different periods of my life. And um, in my early childhood, I was raised in the Catholic church. Um, my mom is Filipina and she um, is a part, I mean, I feel like because Catholicism is so incredibly global, there's like different um, ways that any faith is approached, but like Catholicism, I don't know. I, my understanding of Catholicism Catholicism is very based off of my Filipino identity. Um, so we're in that until from like birth until prepubescence, pubescence. So like uh, middle schoolish. Um, and then I became really involved in sports. And so sports took hold over, <laughs> over church. Um, in high school, I as at the end of high school, um, I joined an evangelical church. Um, because it was like the cool thing to do. Um, I live in, I, I grew up in Orange County. I live, I still live here in Orange County, California, which is just like, um, a very conservative area of a very blue state. And at that time there was, um, just a lot of outreach church planning, a lot of youth group things. So I wasn't really allowed to go anywhere. I had very protective parents and they trusted the two girls who went to, this particular church. And um, I started going with them. So I think I was in the evangelical church in my teen years for maybe six months. And then I went to college and um, I went to what some would call a party school. Um, I will not deny that. And, <laughs> um, so like I had, I, what is the, like the words that they, like the dual lives, right? Like I'd like party mm. and then like on Sunday. Um, but so during you were college, in the world. I, and I was the world. totally, the world was in me. I was in the world. <laughs> um, I have, I have a lot of funny stories, but um, yeah. So during that college time, I was actually a part of the black missionary Baptist church that was very local to our area. It's where my husband um, 
And I still consider myself a daughter of that Black Missionary Baptist Church. It was very formational. Um, but after college, I moved back home um, and was very depressed. And a friend had just recommended going back to the church I went to in high school. So I went back to the evangelical church um, that I was a part of and was there for 10 years. And in um, 2016, that's when a lot of the things started to, to crack. Like a lot of, I started looking at things differently, but I had, I was very much in that like church family mentality, um, which as like somebody who grew up in a collectivist culture as a Filipino, um, like in within my Filipino family, that whole church family language is like so weird when I look at it now, um, because in white evangelicalism, it's very individualistic. So they're using this like collectivist language that I would like cling on to because I was raised in that capacity. And like, I was I was once called a super volunteer <laughs> within the church because I was always there and I was like, oh yeah, this is my family. This is how we operate in the family. We just show up all the time. Um, and then in 2016, I went to a women of color and ministry retreat. And that was the first time, A, that I was around so many women of color. Um, who operated in ministry. Um, but then B also was, this is like right after Lemonade came out from Beyonce, which is formational. Whole <laughs> yes. liturgy, Lemonade, Beyonce, oh, every Beyonce album. Um, and so that was the first time that I was in a space of lament. Um, and that was 2016 and we started, I started questioning things, but at the same time, there is like that manipulation of being called family and coming from a collectivist culture and me like asking questions, rocking the boat. And then finally it came to this, this space where I would do a lot of like, I guess like underground things. Like I would host Bible studies and um, do book readings with people who are like-minded in the church, but I did it without the church knowing. Um, and I got a lot of flack for that. Oh, well. <laughs> and finally, in I just couldn't, I couldn't stay. Um, right. This is after George Floyd was murdered. Um, and it was for this. It, uh, I asked, I told God, if you want me to stay, show me. And if you want me to leave, make it really obvious. And God made it really obvious. So I left. Yeah. Now I'm just floating around on my, cloud of what the heck's going on all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes, I know you're writing a book. I know that you're writing and you're creating. And I'm just curious if you were writing and creating in a different context before that point in 2016, um, or if like kind of the creation and the things that you're writing and the things that you're studying and, and learning was kind of born out of that experience of leaving or disillusionment or, or, opening up to new experiences. Yeah, I was on and off again, but I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't as serious as I am now. Obviously, it's my job now. Um, but there was this, um, I was in an environment of suppression. So like no one cared about my voice. They cared about my husband. Poured a lot, and my, I mean, I love my husband, poured a lot into him, focused most of their attention on him. Um, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't, writing in the same way that I am writing because I was um, coerced into being very complicit with everything that was going on. And, um, and I was, I was actually operating out of a place of functional depression, like looking back, um, mm. uh, 
the years that I was there, especially um, more towards the end, I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't um, aware of anything. I had no boundaries. Um, I was gaslighting myself. So there wasn't even a space. I feel like in order to write you for myself, in order to write, I had, I have to be able to take care of myself. So I wasn't even in a space of care, um, for that, uh, towards the end, like maybe 2018, 2019, I started writing poetry, um, and sharing it on Instagram. Cause I didn't know what else to do. I didn't know. I didn't know how to like share my writing and, um, no one from my church liked it. And my church was my whole social circles, my whole world. So I felt really bad about that, that they didn't like it. Um, now I just don't give a flying fuck, but yeah, it wasn't until I had to leave that community to really become myself. Um, Cause I've always been a writer. It's just that for that decade of being an evangelicalism, I suppressed the shit out of any sort of creative outlet in my life because it didn't look the way the truth needed to look. Yeah. And that, I mean, I was going to ask kind of a similar thing because you talked about having these like kind of quiet secret book clubs or, or like, you know, studies that you were doing. And so like, were there specific topics or things that you were naming or addressing that were making people uncomfortable or was it just um, generally like just the sense that it wasn't endorsed by the church or was it like a specific thing? I think one was I was a youth leader at the time and there was a group of girls under a narcissistic youth pastor, which is not a very, mm-hmm. not a, yeah, not a rare thing. Kind of redundant, um, but, I guess. Narcissistic youth pastor. <laughs> this is coming from a former there, youth pastor. So. Right. Church needs new motifs. Um, and so there is a small group of girls who were like, I just don't really feel like I'm gaining anything from this pastor. And I was like, oh, great, let's lead a Bible study. So I like during um, main service, I would just do a Bible study with them on church grounds. And there was no, I, all of their parents lean on very conservative. So I wasn't in there to be like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to show you the way of God and like show you that this is awful. Like I just was like, okay, let's just do this Bible study in the book of John and like dive deeper into it. And then the youth pastor figured it out, pulled me aside and like shamed me into stopping. And so I had to stop. And um, years later, the girls and I reconciled, most of the girls and I reconciled about that. And they just said like, they hated that he did that. And I was like, at that point, I was like, I literally did like, it was a power play, right? He's getting paid to do this. I have to like, blah, 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 authority. I have to blah, blah, blah. And because it's not a program that is offered by him, um, you know, it, it was a, a danger to the church in order, in other words, a, a danger to his position. Um, yeah. I mean, I could talk shit about that guy all day. Really good. <laughs> um, and I'm I'll save you it. all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And then there was another context in which um, she and I are, are still really close friends. Uh, I feel like our friendship like solidified, but we were reading Lisa Sharon Harper's The Very Good Gospel um, together during service. And, you know, later, like years later, she, um, years later, she publicly identifies as a lesbian. And I'm like, yeah, dude, like, fuck the church. I love black people. <laughs> like, all these things. So we just like, I felt like it was a time of our own like incubation. Like it was like our own womb period or together we were. Um, unable to fully express ourselves and we're like coming into this place of being able to express ourselves. And yeah, I'm glad that we're still friends. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there's this element 
and things that I've heard you talk about um, in terms of how like the, I don't know, the deconstruction and I, I, for lack of a better word, the, the deconstruction space, the post-faith ex-evangelical, post-evangelical, whatever, um, oftentimes like, lacks some self-awareness, uh, especially, uh, white male ex-pastor ex-evangelicals, I think especially, uh, lack a lot of self-awareness. Um, but I also think that there is an element of like the way the evangelical church currently and some maybe outside of that community look and, and they see it as, tearing down of creation whereas like i see people like you and i see so many people in what i would consider that space who have been freed to actually create and actually like build and do things like what i hear you saying is like i felt muted and i felt like i couldn't speak and i was basically being made to be quiet and this space is allowing you to not tear something down, but to actually create something and actually build something and write something and do something. Do you feel that that's like, do you relate to that experience or that that is how you have felt? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly how I felt. <clears throat> I feel like on the other, <laughs> maybe because St. Patrick's is coming up, but like, you know, on the other side of the rainbow is a pot of gold. And I feel like we're just stuck traveling through and not getting ourselves to the richness of reconstruction. Um, and now, and like, <clears throat> I think uh, it's about Virgin Nation by Sarah Mosliner. I can't, thank you. I'm like, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> pronouncing names. Um, where in her book, she talks about how like ev evangelicalism specifically, um, it is, it prides itself on being rebellious and we get caught in, in that structure of like, what are we, it's not even like rebellious against one thing. It's just like, oh, let's just take all these emotions associated with rebellion and like point it at one thing so that we could be, um, we can be countercultural or we can be different. And so I, I am putting that in the context of like deconstruction because I hate, I don't like being in most deconstruction conversations. I'm in deconstruction communities. Like I facilitate deconstruction groups, but I feel like um, I don't want to waste my time. Um, my time is really important to me and I love myself and God loves me. I don't really need to waste all of that having conversations with people who only know how to have feelings of rebellion and shock um, towards whatever it is the thing of the day, right? Like for me, it's, um, I think reconstruction is beautiful and I think it is, I think it's wonderful to not live muted. And I feel sad for people who are stuck in like the pipelines of deconstruction because they're always arguing against um, somebody who is trying to shut that shit down or like somebody who has to have some sort of clapback or some sort of thought. Um, and right. And these are people who like literally don't know what they talk or they're talking about, but they find more comfort in being a sounding board 
than to be a person who seeks to understand. Yeah. yeah, I'm curious because I think um, like there's there's a lot of folks that um, are, have a love hate relationship with the word reconstruction, right? And so I think that like what happens often is it's given prescriptively to to people because it's like um, you know, hey, like sure you can deconstruct as long as you reconstruct and as long as you land here, and and it what I hear you saying is like like you're wanting to build something and find something and find meaning and, and, and find what that is for you. But I don't hear you saying that prescriptively, like you can't, you, you know, you have to do certain things, you have to follow a certain path. And, and so I'm just curious, like if you could unpack a little bit, like what you mean and what it looks like to reconstruct. Yeah. I think there's more hope in sci-fi than there is in the Bible. That's what <laughs> reconstruction means to me. Cause <clears throat> In like regards to like leadership development, right? As a leader, my job is for the person that I'm raising up to replace me, just like in in like a employment corporate sense, right? In leadership development. Um, and so I I take that understanding, um, and I ha I actually haven't even thought. <laughs> I don't think of church language. Like I, I literally, <laughs> like my brain will stop working. Like I, and people know this about me. Like I will stop listening and I will just like live inside my head once people start using like churchy words as I like literally don't care. Um, so I didn't think about reconstruction in regards to it being a triggering word, but now I can understand that. Um, so thank you. But I, or not, but, but, and I, I know that I am replaceable and in understanding that I want, I even, I, I want my own sense of creativity to be replaced by someone who can bring more to the table. Um, and then I want that, that model to continue. Um, but the table doesn't have a structure or a system, mm. right? I don't want to teach people to think into boxes and compartmentalize my opinion of God is that, and I've, I've talked about this in Robert's podcast, where the story behind it was I was thinking about how um, through our creativity, we are exploring what is infinite. Um, there's no landing place. And I really felt like, like the word of like God speaking to me and saying, but I'm infinite. So when you are expanding your creativity, you are exploring who I am. And so I don't... I like, I operate mostly in the world of poetry. And so when people ask me to edit or look at poetry, um, I'll give my opinions, revisions, critique, but I don't have, I don't do it with the expectation that they're going to write like me or that they're going to think like me. I do it with the expectation of like, I'm giving this to you so that you can expand and explore beyond what you already know of this form. Um, and that's, that's really how I feel not feel, but that's how I want to show up and operate in the world for other people who are healing from religious abuse, where it's like, we've been yeah. put into boxes and systems and taught to think in boxes and, and systems, but what if we let that go? What, what amazing things would come and how would we be able to like churchy language, like pour in to other people so that they don't have to think about things in regards to boxes and systems? What if, hmm. what if we were in, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that to me, like, that's like one of the, the things that's super compelling about the work you're doing and 
so many people that I've just recently kind of began to get connected with. And I think to Megan's point, partially because like, I'm not afraid anymore that like, I'm going to get roped back into something. I think that people have that fear. They're like, Oh, don't talk to me about, you know, you know, these things that feel like they might like for me, when I, when I deconverted and became an atheist, I was like, I don't want to hear about God or I don't want to hear about, you know, there were these words that had been so abused for me. Yeah. And now I'm like, I want to, let's talk about God. Like, I don't really believe in God, but I think it's like a really interesting conversation. And actually I'm missing something if I don't talk about it because I like talking about it and I don't feel mm -hmm. like it's like going to, and, and so, um, I'm, I, I'm, it'd be interesting to hear you talk about, like you speak on abuse and you talk about abuse inside and outside the church sexual violence, these really heavy topics, you're also talking about liberation and creation and like imagination. How do you balance that and like between those two things? Or am I seeing it wrong by even seeing it dualistically like that? I don't think you're seeing it wrong. I also am I'm pausing because I just want to recognize that you have been able to shift conversations in ways that show up for you and care for you. And I just want to say that's really incredible um, and hold space for that. But in regards to the question, I think that <clears throat> I'm really, I'm, I'm really soft. I'm really sensitive. I'm highly empathetic. Um, and I feel like I'm, being crushed daily um, just by all the events going on, right? And um, I write about that really often, but at the same time, I'm a mom of three young kids and I gotta be there for them, right? I love my husband and I wanna show up in our marriage. You know, I have my community of folks who show up for me and I want that to be reciprocal. Um, and I have a very rich internal, <laughs> life in which that I like have a big imagination and um I I think that both like the conversation of liberation and creativity they're intertwined um because it's the only way I know how to carry on in a world that wants to kill me daily you know I need I need to be able to have art I need to be able to write, I need to be able to express myself. Um, I need to be able to teach others to express themselves and to tell their stories because is it Maya Angelou who said the worst thing that lives inside you is an untold story. Um, I totally butchered that and paraphrased it. Um, but yeah, we, this is a way that we survive. And so I need this to survive just as much as I need food and water. Yeah. And what I hear you saying in that is that they aren't necessarily oppositional things, but like they're, like you said, intertwined that like yeah. the creation and the art is a part of addressing the trauma and the healing. Yeah. 
A hundred percent. How else are you going to address it? Straight on? Play someone else's game? I don't, I don't want to play someone else's game. I want to play my own game. And my game is that I, I write and I'm creative and I express myself in ways that I want to. And now I can because I wasn't able to before. Um, and it feels good to be able to express yourself. It feels good to be able to be seen in the ways that you want to be seen and you want to show up. I had a friend who, when she was publishing her book, um, she's an Asian American writer. And um, that was a constant battle in their process of writing because they were constantly telling their editor, like, this is how I, I write out of my culture. I want to show up like this. And so the editor, I mean, the editors, a good editor asks questions. <laughs> they don't tell you how to write. Um, and so the editor was great in asking questions. And my friend, they would say, I'm showing up this way because this is how I want to show up. Yeah. And I think that our, yeah, I think that when we talk about liberation, a big part of that is how do we want to show up? Who, who are we going to be? Right? I love Toni Morrison and Toni Morrison wrote from a lens that was her own and was very like, was criticized and questioned and called racist and, you know, received a lot of pushback. And Toni Morrison said, I don't write for you. I write as a black woman who grew up poor in Ohio. I write as a black woman whose parents had to flee the South because, you know, the white men were circling their children, you know? And she said, I don't, if you want me to write like you to appease you, then Who's going to call you out? Who's going to ask for better? Who's going to give more? You know, I don't, I don't seek to be suppressed. It's not something that I want to do. I've done it for long enough. I'm good. <laughs> well, and I'm curious, like, just as you're talking and, and you're talking about the lens through which you write, I, um, we've talked about this on previous episodes with other guests, but like you had a very different cultural experiences within your experiences of faith because just being part of a Filipino church and then being part of um, what I'm imagining is like white evangelicalism and I and then you know being part of a black church and so I'm curious like in all of those experiences was there you know disentanglement decolonization from like okay what part like what part am I like holding on to this is like you know, my, my identity, my cultural identity. And then what part is like, okay, this is, you know, I'm trying, as you're talking about reconstructing, like, okay, these are the values that I hold. And, and how, how has that been that part of your journey been? Oh, it's been emotional. <laughs> it's been hard. It's hard for our journey. Um, because within how I show up in each spiritual space, there is the internalized battle of being mixed right? I'm Filipino and Black. So if I go into a Filipino space, I'm automatically, I'm automatically operating and like swimming through waters of anti-Blackness. If mm -hmm. I go to an all, an all Black space, you know, I'm, if it's, if there is deep and painful, like patriarchy, um, which is something that I like, that was 
really hard within um, the Black Missionary Baptist Church was like having to operate in a space that and a community that loved me, but was like deeply patriarchal and very homophobic. And like, what does it mean to exist here? But also um, I was, I went to a predominantly white institution. I was in predominantly white like study spaces. This is the only opportunity I had to be amongst black folk within the community that I knew of um, outside of school. And I just wanted to be loved by black elders, which is something that I didn't, I mean, a part of my story is that I didn't really get that because my dad um, was very distant from his family. So I was raised by the Filipino side of my family. Um, so that's backstory. But yeah, all of it is difficult because I'm constantly thinking, like now I'm constantly thinking, okay, how do I approach this in the safest manner? Um, not safe in the sense of like, I can't talk about this topic with you, but safe in the sense of like, how do I leave here feeling whole? Um, mm. And wholeness means I speak my truth and I listen to other people's truth. And then I also can put a boundary on criticism that would hurt me um, and express myself as vulnerably as I can in that way. Sometimes I'm not vulnerable. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's hard, but there have been some really interesting and beautiful changes that I've seen in most of the spaces. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the evangelical, but like my mom is, my mom and my elders and my family, um, you know, when you come from, especially like Asian immigrants, Asian immigrants, like we find each other and we find these communities of care within ourselves and within our cultures um, to help us survive all of the racisms, the sexisms, the colonial mentalities um, of living in America. And my mom has that. And not only does she have that, but it's like her sisters and her brothers, they all go together to pray. And it's hard for me because I'm like, uh, the only reason why we're Catholic is because of colonization and like the extreme violence of Spain. Um, but they, they have this like black Jesus statue. So let me backtrack. There's like always layers, but <laughs> um, in the Philippines, if you've ever seen an indigenous Filipino, they look black. Um, they, there's a word that is used to describe them. I will not use that word. Um, it starts with N, uh, <laughs> but you know, they have this indigenous Jesus statue. This Jesus looks black and they pray to him every week. And then we eat like a huge potluck meal and it's delicious. And you know, they play bingo because Asians gamble. Um, and this is my family's gambling of choice. Um, <laughs> but but there's like, you know, there, I have, I've gone from watching my mom go to church and like pray at the foot of white Jesus and like, you know, steal some hay from white baby Jesus's uh, like little fancy altar at the Catholic church um, to weekly they go to, they have this black Jesus statue that they like share and, you know, sing worship songs to this little black Jesus guy goes around to like their houses and they pray to, but they have this community. And for me, it's like, oh, this is what decolonization looks like. Um, or at least an untethering from the harm of whiteness within our community. Um, and there has been from, if I can analyze from the time I was a child to today, there has been more comfort and care and community in what my elders have all created for themselves. Um, in this new context that we have now. 
so there, there's just, I mean, there's, there's so much. My husband grew up in the Black Missionary Baptist Church where we met and his stepdad was the reverend. And, you know, my husband grew up in the Black church. He's Chicano. So his, his family is from Mexico. Um, so he has been immersed into Black culture his whole life. Stepdad is Black from Ohio. Um, and he and I are frequently having these conversations about like, what is toxic masculinity? What, how is patriarchy showing up in our family? How, how's it showing up in how we raise our kids? How can we defy it? And these are conversations that um, I couldn't even imagine having with this man who was raised by two dads. One, you know, the toxic masculinity of the black church. And then the other one is the hyper masculinity of machismo from Mexico. So like, I'm, I'm not, I don't believe in staying in, in harmful environments, um, but I believe in staying in relationships where you can flourish. And that does not mean that you stay in relationships with people who will willingly harm you um, and be ignorant to that harm or choose to be ignorant to that harm. I believe that if dignity can be reciprocated, then it's a relationship worth staying in, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you stay in that environment, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it's, I feel like it's like really relevant and something that, that our listeners have, you know, really responded to and said that people that we've had, like Ashley Tom Thomas, who's on the podcast, um, talked a lot about that and talked a lot about I think, you know, there's this element, there's so much intersectionality in your experience. And I think that there's so much that our listeners and, and me, I guess if I'm just like projecting <laughs> myself on, on our listeners, um, can, can learn from that perspective that says, there's more than one thing happening right here. Like you're bringing yeah. up aspects of patriarchy and misogyny and anti-blackness and colonization and racism as, as a whole. And all of those things, I Twitter, especially you see people like trying to like, I don't know, uh, oppose a transphobic person and then all of a sudden they're being anti-semitic or oppose a uh you know someone they're calling out for misogyny but then they're being very anti-black and like yeah. there's more than one thing happening or ableist yeah <laughs> in these or in these interactions and i just i imagine that like your experience i'd love to hear you talk more about just those intersections from your perspective and your experiences in navigating these conversations and these communities. Well, and, and before you dive in, I just want to say, cause I, I, you're super active on Twitter and on social media. And, and I can imagine that when you see some of this stuff, you're like, like they're missing so much of the picture <laughs> like that. Cause I, I see, and I see you name that sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I, I don't, I intentionally don't go into a lot of conversations and I don't like subtweeting. I have done it. I don't subtweet because I, I would rather, I would rather approach confrontation head on, but there are people where I'm like, 
it's not worth it to be in this conversation. Um, again, I love my time and I love me. And so, um, that's my ethic, but there was intersectionality is hard. Let me just say that it's just hard in general. Um, and there's a lot of pitfalls with it. I mean, like, and it has been romanticized. Like we should have an intersectional lens and all these things. And I agree. Um, my approach to intersectionality is one of acceptance, but also very clear on my, my own boundaries. Um, right. So I don't believe in, I don't believe in reverses in general, like reverse racism doesn't exist in my book. You know, the heterophobia doesn't exist. Um, I'm trying to think of all the other things, right? Like, um, reverse ableism, like that doesn't, that doesn't exist in, in my world and I'll shut that shit down or I'll just tell people like I, it's not worth it to talk with you about this because there's a lot of learning that you have to do that like I it, I'm not getting paid so <laughs> I'm not going to do it um but yeah I walk I walk very clearly in that in that role that I have where we can have the conversation most definitely I want us to have the conversation but the moment someone says um you're attacking my identity of privilege is the moment where I say, yeah, so what? There's <laughs> yeah. a part of it where I'm like, I, okay, yeah, great. Um, and the reason why I have that attitude is because people make allegiances to privilege more so than they make allegiances to people or more mm. so than they make allegiances to dignity, I should say, right? So, um, like Sarah Silverman, after after Kanye called out, or after, not called out, after everyone called out and canceled Kanye, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> after Kanye was very robust in his anti-Semitism, Sarah Silverman posted this thing about like, well, no one stands up for the Jews when we need it. And um, she's really disappointed. But Sarah Silverman had gone to women of color and told them how they should be feeling and reacting to discrimination on their part. So for me, it's like, okay, I get this, like he is being anti-Semitic and I do not like the anti-Semitism. And Sarah Silverman as a Jewish, like celebrity Jewish figurehead within our culture, um, I listen to you. And yes, we need to talk more about speaking out against anti-Semitism, but I can also be critical of the fact that you're only speaking to white people because you only care about white people. And that's like, and talking about anti-Semitism is really hard. Um, and I actually, I have, it's not a conversation that I will like willingly walk into because it is also a conversation about whiteness and allegiances to whiteness um, and finding nuance and gray area and being able to say like, this is anti-Semitic. Um, how do we listen to those who are, Jewish who have also done the anti-racism work, but, or how to listen to those who are Jewish and have done like the anti-racism and anti-patriarchy work. Um, how, how do we have this conversation and recognize that um, the way that I like, the way that I explain this to my kids who are all under the age of eight 
is I say people are like prisms. And when you put light into a prism, you have a whole rainbow. And that's because there's so many things that happen in people. I'm literally using the same tone with my kids. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. Honestly, that's the tone I need. So it's perfect. <laughs> that's right at my level. But there are so many things and so many colors and so and so much that is held within people. And we have to honor that people are not flat. We have to honor that we need to shine a light on people. And you know, th that can go into like light of Jesus. No, oh, I'm not gonna go there. But <laughs> we need to be able to shine a light and like recognize that there's so much more than what we see. And um, I tell them mommy gets caught up in this way too many times. So trust me, I'm taking personal experience. Um, but we have to recognize that there is, there is so much. Um, but even in the muchness of it, people will still choose their allegiances to privilege because it keeps them safe. So how do we have these conversations in which we say, hey, I don't agree with what you're saying, but I want you to know that you're safe enough to have this conversation with me. And it's not, I'm not perfect at this. I struggle with it. Um, but the fact that I'm still working towards it is something that makes me feel good <laughs> like it gives me it gives me hope to say like okay well I'm still working towards this but like I said I I don't believe in reverses and so I'll shut down a conversation or I'll walk out of a conversation and feel all the more better about it because my dignity is important um and I've seen situations where I'm gonna use cult like wider culture wider w-i-d-e-r as an example <laughs> um right Lizzo and Beyonce removed lyrics from their songs that were ableist um, because the disabled community asked them to. But when white people had whole albums um, using ableist language, um, they said nothing. And so for me, it's like, okay, let's have this conversation about ableism. I also want to bring racism into this conversation. I also want to bring um, fat phobia and body shaming into this conversation. Um, and if we can't handle that, then we're not mature enough to use our voice yet. Um, and that's not me policing, that's me actually just being a mom and saying, I think you need to grow up in this way because, like, not to say that these are like adult conversations, but I, did, I think you need to grow up in this way because there are people who are going to listen to your voice. Social media is based off of parasocial relationships, right? but not everybody is going to flourish under your voice. So what do you want more? Mm. Well, and yeah. I think, I mean, yeah. And I, and I think it goes like Lizzo and Beyonce understand power and privilege dynamics that, that those white artists probably don't understand that we could probably make that assumption or, or maybe are still, I, I don't know. And so I think that like, that's a huge piece of it. And when you get into these conversations, I think it, it, it becomes really clear, really fast, whether people have that basic understanding of power and privilege dynamics or whether people don't, because I think that when they start bringing up those reverses, it's like, oh, okay. Like you, you maybe don't have a grasp of how power and privilege works in the, in, in this and in, in what these dynamics are. Yeah. I think that's why I usually say allegiances. Like, okay, what are you pledging allegiance to? Cool. 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 Um, and yeah, it comes down to discerning, do I want to be in a conversation where this person has complete and total allegiance 
to this space of privilege or do I walk yeah. away? Yeah. Well, and I, and I think there is like, I've heard you say a couple times in this conversation about boundaries, protecting boundaries to protect yourself. Um, and I think that's so crucial, right? Like I'm not going to engage in these conversations. I'm not getting paid for this time. You know, whatever, whatever, yeah. whatever that boundary might be. I also think on the other side of it for myself as a person with, sure, I have marginalized identities. I'm a queer person. I, you know, that's about it. <laughs> like I'm a polyamorous person. Like I guess maybe some people could consider that. I don't have a ton. Like most I'm cis, I'm male, I'm white. I grew up relatively wealthy. Um, there's, there's a, I don't know. I, I see something that sometimes happens where somebody in my position will hear you talk someone in your position, talk about setting boundaries and then use that language to avoid getting uncomfortable with pushing like up against parts of their privilege. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, like as an example, I've mentioned it on this show before, like we've had interactions on Twitter where you're like, Hey, this ain't it. And like yeah. people who do that for me, I want to lean towards and I want to like support and I want to like be put myself in those positions because that's like confronting my privilege. And I don't know, I just see a lot of people using the sense of like, oh, I just have to create a boundary and take care of myself to avoid really like taking accountability. Yeah, that's and I would be that's curious why. your thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> on, on that. I think it hurts. It hurts and it sucks. Like it's, it's cause what they're saying is you're not important enough to listen to every time. Mm. And that shit hurts. Like it, it hurts to my core. I don't cry about it anymore. Um, I also don't fight back. Right. Um, I've, I, I have been working with my concept of understanding grace in like the biblical sense. And um, I'm in a space now where giving grace happens <laughs> from me um, to other people, but I am more focused on what it means to give grace to myself and to walk in that grace and affirm that walking in grace means I can look like a huge bitch to some fucking people I don't care because <laughs> I... I have three little people who rely on me to be the best version of myself for them. Um, not to say like, I'm a perfectionist as a mom, I'm recovering, um, but to say that a parasocial relationship means nothing to me in comparison to my children. At the end of the day, my children come first. And so it hurts when someone spiritually gaslights me or like tells me that they don't care um or that they are like ignores me I don't know combats me all of that hurts but those are not the relationships that I'm actually made for you know I'm made for a relationship with my kids in my community with my husband with my parents with my brothers you know like I have 
I have relationships where I need to show up. So if somebody says something that is hurtful on Twitter, I am hurt, but I'm also reminded that their problems are not my own, right? Deal with yourself. A lot of, a lot of liberation is healing. Mm. A lot of liberation is learning how to connect with yourself in a way that can authentically dignify others. That means that you don't feel insecure about giving someone else time, space, energy, or attention. And if you're not mature enough for that, then what's the point in me wasting my time? And I'm not getting paid for it. Jesus. Like, <laughs> like what's the... I got mouths to feed. What's the point of Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, I feel like I've been talking too much. Megan... No. Or Camille, either one of you have, well, I, have things to add because we are getting towards the end where I want to hear you talk. We're about getting towards the end, and I really want to hear about your book because I know you're writing a book, and and it's it's the stuff that you're most passionate about. And I want to hear, you know, like what what is you know what what was that process, and like what are you, what are you doing with it? So, and also, how can people like help fund the writing of it, and when will we be able to pre-order it? Uh, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Yeah, it's like a question sandwich. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> um, so, book pre-order sales I think started March. Um, so when that's I'll be up. I know I got the final cover and was like crying everywhere. <laughs> that's um, awesome. Thank you. And yeah, so pre-order sales is in March. The book is published on November 7th, but pre-order sales is really important. I, or so I've heard. This is my first time doing this. Um, and I'm currently in the editing phase. So I'm waiting. I just, I submitted my manuscript. So I'm waiting for the manuscript to be edited so I can go through. Um, I think I have like one or two rounds of editing, um, maybe three or four, who knows. But the book is called The Hero and the Whore. Um there is a subtitle and it's really long and it's my fault that it's so long and I can't remember the whole subtitle, but it's like reclaiming stories of healing and liberation from sexual exploitation victims of the Bible. That's the subtitle. The, yeah, it's a lot. Um, and so the book is 10 different stories of the Bible in which sexual exploitation happens. So we have Eve, Hagar, Leah, um, Haman, I think it's Haman. No, is that his name? I can't remember. Um, Bashti, Bathsheba, on and on. And it's looking at their stories through different lenses. So the first lens is abolitionism. Like, how do we look at this in a lens that does not police their bodies, um, mm. does not police their experience, doesn't cover up their experience, but also how do we look at what they're going through? Um, but this was the most challenging part. How do I look at what they're going through um, in a way that doesn't seek to punish those who hurt them, but seeks to tell the truth and hold them into accountability? Um, wow. So, yeah, the first like the first chapter that I actually wrote was Hagar's chapter. Um, and the story of Abraham and Sarah is like the old, like the first story I heard as a little Catholic girl in Catholic school. Um, I still remember the pictures, from the books, the booklets that we flannel. Had. Did you have a flannel graph? <laughs> yeah, I had something. I 
here. Oh gosh. And um, how how do I recognize that Abraham and Sarah did something wrong? Um, mm. But not seek to like call them evil because they're still like the mother and father of the faith. So how do I, how do I, as a writer, call this into attention and say, by the way, like we need to be aware of this in our own lives and in how we're doing it. Um, so we talked about intersectionality, right? Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, that, that situation is a very good example of what does an intersectional lens look like in relationship to not just the pursuit of God, but like the pursuit of flourishing. Um, yeah, so we, there's, every chapter is divided into two parts. So the first part is I take the plot gaps of the stories and I create, I created a poem based off of it. Um, so I rewrote their stories in, in poetry forms just based off plot gaps. Um, and then the second part is the analysis of violence that is happening there. Um, I'm not, a, I, I'm, I am a theologian because I write about God but I am not a theologian by going to seminary. Pay me <laughs> to go to seminary yeah. is my, yes. my thought process. Um, I am a cultural analyst. So I'm literally just analyzing um, the culture of violence within the story. Um, but then also looking at what tools did these victims have and use um, or I should say survivors, what tools do these survivors have and use for themselves to pursue better um, or to pursue survival in most cases. But the thing about writing about sexual violence um, in any context, especially within the Bible, is that children happen when sexual violence happens. So how do I, how do I write towards this um, and not just make it a story about them specifically, that's my dog, <laughs> not just to make it a story about them specifically, but make it a story that recognizes um, that children are impacted, the next generation is impacted. Hmm. How does the next generation move according to the trauma that a survivor had faced in their lifetime? So there's, it's, it's a lot, it's heavy. Um, I liked writing it. <laughs> I did a lot of crying. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm so ready. I like, I want, I want it now. I, I'm, I'm not very... now. Cause if I, it's, it's janky right now. Cause I'm still a draft. Wait until it's polished. <laughs> All right. Yeah. We will, we'll be able to wait, but I want to pre-order it now. I'm very yeah, excited. We can still pre-order um, it. Yeah. And it is, it is very important. And I say this on the podcast every time we have, we've had a ton of people on here right before a book comes out and talking about pre-orders and every time I'm like fucking pre-order the book like people in this day and age think like it's Amazon Prime I'll order it when it comes out it'll be there in two days that's not what it's about shut the fuck up pre-order the book now because <laughs> publishers and media outlets and reviewers and Amazon and everybody is looking at pre-order numbers and that determines yeah. how much they're going to put behind the push and the attention and the media and whatever else it might get. So it's not about your convenience. People are like, oh, I don't need to pre-order. I'll pre-order when it comes out. No, you won't. Fucking pre-order it. Anyway, <laughs> there's my shtick. Uh, Before, we want to also give you a chance to kind of plug like where people can find you. But I, al I always ask, like, or I try to ask, sometimes I forget, if you were ever to come back 
on the show and just talk about whatever you wanted, something that maybe is not something that you're known for talking about? Like, is there like a topic that you could just talk about that you are really interested in? That is like just in life in general? Because right yeah, now yeah, it's anything. not like faith or theology or any of that. Um, I would love to talk about how difficult it is to have a French bulldog because my dog is in the background, like just curious. <laughs> All right, we do our episode about pets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, let me let me come in. I have so many things that I'm learning about having a French bulldog, and I'm like, I love it. Uh, where there, can I'm people ready. find you, follow you, and interact with your work, support you? Um, so on most of the social medias, my handle is at hello Camille H. So H E L L O C A M I L L E, then the letter H. Um, it's Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And I mainly write on my Substack, um, and I try to write at least something once a week, but um, heavy emphasis on the word try. Um, and that is camillehernandez.substack.com. And those are the places to find me. Awesome. awesome. I, don't, I don't think I follow you on TikTok yet, so I need to go do that. I just followed Pastor Trey on TikTok and it's making my For You page so lovely. I'm so happy to have him in my FYP. Yeah, my I, I do a lot of purity culture shit talk on TikTok. That's like my nice. my bread and butter. I'm like, oh man, this this audio works really well to make fun of all of the trauma I have from the sexual violence of purity culture. Let me do that. <laughs> yes. yes. That's the perfect... Uh, uh, thing for that platform so yes that's great I can't wait to have it in my feed um, cool. thank, thank you so you. much Camille for coming on the show and um, yeah can't wait for our listeners to get to know you a little bit better thanks so much yeah. for having me can't wait to have you back alright I love her me too. I'm so excited about, you know, when she was talking about her book and like, I was just like, I need to read this book. She's like, it's not ready yet. And I was like, no, I need it now. I, it's um, funny because I, I wasn't connected with her and I was like, oh, I wonder if we can ha have her as a guest on there after I kind of had like a guest podcast guest crush on her. And, um, I was telling my friend, Michael Shepard, and he was like, oh, we're like friends in real life. We pick up our kids at the playground together and our kids played. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. And so um, it was a great it was a great connection. And um, yeah, to ha to see friends of friends. And I, I always love that because you're like, oh, you're friends in real life. That's great. Yes. Yes. Love, love when those connections come together. And um, yeah, I really hope that people uh, not only enjoyed the interview today, but will go and follow her work and, you know, pre-order the book when it is available for pre-order um, and really support what she's doing because outside of even just what we talked about on the podcast and uh, what she's doing with her book, she's doing other really important work. So, um, yeah, please go and, and, and follow Camille. Well, and one more thing about that is I think it's timely because um, in re in response to the Gospel Coalition article we talked about in our intro, she tweeted, had a couple tweets about, hey, like, and other people had tweets. If you want to read an actual good book about sex and the church and, and 
women and patriarchy and, you know, all of that, like, let's check out Camille's book, which is so true. So go check out Camille's book and you don't have to worry about that other guy who we'll stop talking about. Yes. Yes. Uh, I agree. Let's stop talking about him. Uh, we have enough street cred now. <laughs> it's a callback to a former, uh, article. If you know, you know, uh, Megan, where can people find you connect, follow, get involved in what you are doing, what we are doing with, uh, the podcast and around the web. Uh, yeah, you can find me at the pursuing life pretty much everywhere. And you can find the podcast at thereafter podcast on Instagram, thereafter pod on Twitter. And also we have a couple discords. We have one for the podcast. We have one for deconstruction book club right now. We're reading in transit, um, which is really good. And, um, where can people find you Cortland? I am Cortland coffee all around the web. I'm trying to have better boundaries about my social media. So I'm a little less responsive, uh, than, uh, I have been, and I'm going to try to keep moving that in the direction of being less and less responsive. So, uh, on social media, I'm Cortland coffee, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, you know, all the places. Uh, however, uh, one one of the things that I'm going to try to do is shift more of my attention to, you know, really interacting and being in the Discord more. Uh, we have a Discord for Thereafter Pod and uh, being a little less just living on Twitter, um, posting there sometimes, but not living there and not necessarily having as many conversations. So if you want to connect more, the Thereafter Podcast uh, Discord server is a great way to do that. Uh, and we also have the Patreon. If if you want to support what we're doing, um, patreon.com slash thereafterpod um, is a great way. There's like three levels that you can support monthly, and it makes a huge difference, helps pay for editing these episodes and for uh, the software and the various things that we use to produce this show every week. Um, so if you want to support what we're doing, head over there. Uh, we really, really, really appreciate that. And if you don't have money to do that, Give this episode a share uh, on social media or leave a review over on Apple Podcasts. Those are other three ways that you can help, you know, let people know, uh, more people know about what we're doing here. Yeah, that's great. And I will say, I'm, I'm just going to do this thing. It's a shameless plug. But we do, like, do we love thing. our patrons and we're, we're planning some things in the future for, for Patreon. But um, we're not breaking even. So we, Cortland and I shell out some dough every month for this and, and the Patreon helps offset that a little bit, but um, we're still we're still not breaking even. So if, if that's something that you're thinking about or you've thought about and you're like, oh, I should do that. Like if, if you can sign up and if you can't, that's totally fine because we love doing this and we'll continue doing it because um, it is, it, it's fun for us and it's a great way to connect with folks. So Yeah, yeah, but it does make a huge difference and we would love that. So I think that's all we have. Um, We'll see everybody next week uh, for another episode of The Thereafter Podcast. Until next time. <laughs>